The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Theo Fennell. Theo is one of London's leading jewellers and has been making original jewellery and silverware in his workshop and studio on the Fulham Road for over 40 years. Theo, welcome to Table Talk. Good afternoon. Theo, we always start this podcast with the same question. What are your earliest memories of food? I would think semolina. I think I only noticed things I didn't like. I think that's the way it sort of goes. I think my first pineapple was a seminal moment. I think it tended to be pretty much sort of nursery food. I don't remember sort of my mother's milk or anything (laughs) of that sort. (laughs) And you were born in Egypt. Did you spend time in Egypt as a child? No, I mean, I was only there sort of momentarily till I was sort of six months or nine months. And then we went to somewhere else, Pakistan, India. We were in Germany for a bit and then back to it. The first time I came back to England that I remember was, I suppose, in the mid-50s. And I remember coming back on a boat. Uh, it took a very long time. And then being at my aunt's flat, which she shared with my father, because they both lived abroad, opposite the Albert Hall, And I remember waking up in the morning and seeing the Albert Memorial and being absolutely astonished because I'd never seen anything really very much like it, certainly not in Pakistan or in Malaya. So that was the first. And the milkman, and my daughter's never believed this, but the milkman was on a milk float drawn by a horse, you know, a dray pony, with churns of milk on the back. That's how old I am. And did that early travelling influence the way you ate or were you still eating broadly British food wherever you were? No, I don't think the Far East taught me to love fish fingers, to be honest. I think that was just something that... I think I have a sort of predisposition to very simple, very simple food. But I do love exotic food as well. I mean, I love curries. I love... Yes, perhaps it did. I don't know how these things affect one, but I think certainly there's food I still and then thought of as sort of comfort food rather than mood rather than taste I think you know, I, I feel in the mood for a curry or I feel in the mood for it and I think that's, that comes from very early days I would think but certainly I, I, I love curries I love nazi goring I love Indonesian food and pretty much anything to be honest. <laughs> and what were mealtimes like in your family when you were growing up? They were incredibly busy and we all talked nine to the dozen. We argued about everything. I have two very, very bright sisters, so I was outshone in everything other than cricket conversations, which I had with my father. So we we were able to have sort of, I suppose, rather laddish conversations about cricket and about the books that we read, as opposed to the incredibly sort of arcane things that my sisters read and my mother tended to read. But we we, we talked non-stop, and I think that becomes very much part of a family culture, if you do talk and you do, when I say argue, debate, perhaps would be a better word, 
and which we still do now. And, and I think perhaps we're allowed to sort of show off a bit more at table. The one thing you could never do in my youth was ever sort of put yourself up as a expert on anything or having done well at anything. It was the one no-no was, was blowing your own trumpet. So if you just won a Nobel Prize, you had to remain incredibly quiet for the whole of lunch. <laughs> and sitting around those lunch tables, what kind of things would be served at home and who would be doing the cooking? Well, when we were abroad, we were very spoiled because when we were in the sort of the last vestiges, I suppose, of the colonial life, we had a lot of people working around the clock to look after us and feed us and what have you. So we would be cooked for by a succession of Chinese, Malay, Indian, Pakistani people who cooked their local food. Occasionally they made a stab at something English. We'd have a sort of Sunday roast, but it never came out like a Sunday roast. I didn't know what a Sunday roast was, of course, in those days, but it, I remember my father wondering why there was coconut in the lamb and that sort of thing. He had very, very, very English and very simple taste in food. And I remember the first time we had somebody produced spaghetti bolognese. He was horrified by the spaghetti, by, by the idea of the whole thing. So after that, we used to have mashed potato bolognese. <laughs> um, but I do remember those meals. I remember some extraordinary things. I remember most of all the curries that had hundreds of small dishes full of desiccated coconut and little bits of raisins and things, which you never actually got in India or Pakistan, but you always got in, in, in sort of anglicised curries. There were lots of sort of little bowls of odd things, that chutney and things that, that you added. Nothing like as, as potent as the, the chutney one got in, in the Far East. But I remember that, and then when we got back to England, I, I went to boarding school very young. I was about sort of five or something when I went. So the food there was absolutely revolting. I mean, at no stage did it ever even look as if you wanted to eat it. It was, it was absolutely filthy. And the, the, the last, again, the last years of rationing, so powdered eggs and, and those sort of things that anybody my age will remember. But the food was universally disgusting at school. And I think it was done really to get you used to the fact that you may not always get good food, that you could live on almost anything. I mean, I, you know, I, I could probably soak a, a shoe sole and eat it now, I think, <laughs> you get something out of it. When you were a bit older, you, you went to Eton. Was the food any better there, or was it still pretty horrendous? No, it was filth. It really was <laughs> revolting. The only slight difference was that we had some Spanish cooks who had sort of sleeves rolled up and heavily tattooed, and so all the food had a bit of a sort of Spanish bias to it. And it is strange how if you eat foreign food made by indigenous people, as it were, it has a, a properly sort of ethnic taste. But if they try and make something from another country, it's very rare it works, especially when it's something very simple. I mean, you know, English paella is nothing like Spanish paella, and you know, English curry is nothing like Indian curry. So everything we had had a sort of slight sort of tang of saffron about it or you know even even the meat was slightly fishy but it was it was foul the food but also very little of it so we'd all go down to shop afterwards and get some chips or sweets mainly so my, my diet when I was young must have been absolutely appalling I mean I can't think that I got any vitamins or anything really of, of the sort of we had my grandmother had a woman called Mrs Hugo, who was famously the worst cook in 
probably in the world, but I don't think she'd ever got in for anything international, which certainly <laughs> for hundreds of miles around, she was the worst cook. And she was so terrifying that nobody dared question her. So we all had to devise different ways of getting rid of the food without upsetting Mrs. Hugo. And those of us who knew about these things would take little bags into, into lunch that we could sort of secrete things in, or lavatory paper that we then sort of put things in and hide them before we went. So I never really tasted good food. I don't think, certainly in England, I don't think I ever tasted good food until my late teens, you know, when I, I started to go out and realise that there was such thing as good food. And during that period, where were you going out? What was, what was on offer restaurant-wise? Well, London was a very different sort of landscape in the late 60s, early 70s. When I first came up to London to go to art school, the cheapest place was a place called Bistro Vino, which, is, which was, you'd get a bottle of house wine, a bowl of spaghetti and a sort of meat course for two, for a fiver. Gives you some idea of how long that was. And it was sort of palatable. It was good spaghetti and it was sort of al dente. And I'd, I'd only ever sort of tasted really sort of Heinz spaghetti, which was, you know, the sort of consistency of Heinz spaghetti is very different from a sort of proper al dente. <laughs> Italian thing, but I did suddenly realise that, actually, to be truthful, my father would occasionally take me to somewhere like Simpsons you know, on a day out or whatever it was, so I did sort of, I suppose I had a clue as to what good food should taste like, but n- nothing very exotic. I mean, you know, I, I'd sort of forgotten about my early days, so I think what happened then is you start to eat in other restaurants, so certainly Bistro Vino, I used to go to Maggie J in Kensington Church Street, which is still there, Poodle Pot, which is still there, if, if I had some money. And I had an account at a place called Sambuca. I don't know why, because I, I just got on with the waiters there. They were terrifically funny waiters, and you were allowed to behave incredibly badly. But I could sign the bill, and then when I did come into a bit of money, I was able to go and sort of pay it off. But what it meant was that, that when you were at your poorest, you went to somewhere that was incredibly expensive and just signed for it. So I think it was probably quite a good a good idea on their part. But then, of course, the great hamburger revolution came along, and suddenly Hamburger Haven, Hamburger... The Great American Disaster and the Great American Success were two places I went to a lot. It's it's hard to imagine a sort of urban landscape without hamburger joints, but there really weren't. They were the two first ones, that sort of, apart from wimpy bars, which were utterly filthy. And working in the world of jewellery, Theo, presumably there are lots of glamorous parties to go to has, has that been mm. an enjoyable part of the job i'm not sure i can remember most of them but <laughs> one of my ways when i was very hungry i used to go down to the downstairs bar at the ritz with a friend of mine who should be remained nameless because nowadays he's takes himself very seriously but we would go down in dinner jackets as if on our way to somewhere for the evening eat all the olives look at our watches waiting for somebody to arrive and then eat all the crisps and the nuts and things <laughs> and then go, they're obviously not coming, and then leave. You have to sort of divide it between a few hotels because otherwise they got the hang of you. But eventually they did. The man behind the bar at the Ritz eventually said, are you ever going to have a drink? And actually gave us a drink very, very kindly. Realised, took took pity on us. But I did start to go to parties where, yes, there was good food. But even then it wasn't, I don't think it was until the sort of, you know, 80s that really good food became easily findable in London and in people's houses. You know, it was still pretty basic fare. And I think what we've become used to now is so far beyond anything you could really find in, 
in London then. In fact, London was famous for being, you know, a gastronome's nightmare. Obviously, there were places like the Ritz and the Savoy, which I didn't frequent as much as I'd like to have done, <laughs> if at all. But, you know, I had no money, so it was quite difficult to... And then you found people who could cook. Extraordinary. People had girlfriends or girlfriends had boyfriends that could cook. And you started to discover that there was, there was something out there that was very different. And I think the same happened with wine. I mean, you know, everybody knows quite a lot about wine now, to the extent that if you go to a restaurant, most people know what they're looking for or looking at. And, of course, in those days, none of us, unless you were either extremely posh or you, you know, were an aficionado, nobody knew anything about wine. And so you'd sort of, you'd gauge by how interested you were in the person you were having dinner with as to which bottle you'd have. If you didn't hold up much hope, you'd go for the sort of house carafe. But if you were trying to impress, you might go further up the price list. I never got further than about a third of the way up, to be honest, but, but it, that's how one did it then. And now it's very different. You know, people like a cheeky little Reichling or whatever it is, you know, and, and I think it was the same with food. I mean, I can remember not knowing what half the things on the menu were because they were so obscure. But now that would be known to everyone. It was the great age of, you know, avocado vinaigrette and prawn cocktail, followed by a good healthy steak, which was thought of as a sort of really exotic dinner. <laughs> and during, during that period, were you trying your hand at cooking or reliant on others? No, I, I have to admit that it is a skill that's passed me by. I have occasionally tried things, sometimes with disastrous results. Occasionally, I've got away with saying, but the funny thing is, I, I don't, although I love making things and doing things, I find the kind of detritus and mess that I leave behind after a sort of having a stab at cooking incredibly depressing and, and I just can't bear the idea of while I'm doing it that I'm going to have to clean up afterwards so I find it much easier to either rely on other people or pick up the telephone I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> Thea for your jewellery you must rely on lots of different areas for inspiration have you ever been inspired by food and drink for for your designs? Well, I think a drink especially, you know, with, with the sort of things one uses to drink and the sort of paraphernalia of drinking with, with cocktail shakers and glasses and decanters and what have you. So, yes, and obviously in a very straightforward way that, and we do make a lot of things that, you know, I've made uh, a truffle grater that is a, a pig. He scrapes his bottom along the trough and it produces your truffle for you. It doesn't sound very appealing, but, it, <laughs> but in, in, in fact, it does sort of work. So, yeah, a lot of foodie paraphernalia. What I've tried to do often is to reimagine things that were part of a dinner table years ago, whether it would be, you know, salt cellars and cream jugs and fruit knives and those sort of things, as things we use now. So, sort of, you know, as I say, truffle graters or cheese shakers, things that we do use now, you know, for pasta or whatever. So, you know, pasta spoons and, and forks salad spoons and forks rather than the old-fashioned sort of ladles and servers so in that way very much so and I have a lot of foodies as it were who are clients so we do make jewellery I mean I've made a whole set of, of genuine cocktail jewellery of every cocktail drink you can imagine as charms we've made champagne flute brooches with bubbling champagne diamond champagne and what have you so yes I think I suppose much more than one thinks. I mean, I think food plays a huge part in everyone's life, far more than anybody really imagines. And I think, you know, it evokes the smell of various food, you know, evokes so much. 
good or bad, and, and your whole sort of streets in Singapore, I, could, I you just smell normally, funnily enough, a drain or something, but you're suddenly taken back to being in a sort of open, an open market. And I think, you know, France especially, you can be in a marketplace and suddenly smell, or in a food hall somewhere and suddenly smell being in France. You know, I think along with music, along with sound, smell is the most incredibly evocative thing. And I think that has such a, a bearing on how food is. You know, when it smells great, it does set you up for a, a good evening or a good lunch. And when it comes to hosting, is that mm. something that you do, that you do well? Are you a, are you a party, <laughs> party planner? Yes, I suppose I am. I mean, I think Louise, my wife, does it incredibly well. So she's far more organised than I am. And I would think, on the whole, I'm probably a better guest than I am a host. And I would, I would urge everybody under the age of 20 to learn to be a really good guest. And you might ne- never have to host anything. Um, <laughs> what are your top uh, tips for being a good guest? I think the first thing is, is to be reasonably personable. I love your curtains or whatever normally met by somebody saying we're just about to change them or something but you know ingratiate yourself i mean not not over much not in a slime ball way but just enough to sort of to seem as if you're being honest eat lots talk to everybody including their idiot child or very old mother and two of the easiest conversations you never have and try and entertain people and if they're sort of sing-song type people or they're an audience type people, try and get that going. Try and get a little bit of, of a cabaret, even if it's a quiet one. Try and avoid being sick everywhere, getting locked into rooms, insulting their friends or family. I think things like, who's that appallingly ugly person in the corner? Have you not met my daughter? Is always a bad thing at dinner parties. So you just be as anodyne as possible. I think, but eat lots, and this is the most delicious wine. Where did you get it? Because there's always going to be some old bore that will give you a story. And you may never have to cook again. <laughs> Ideal. <laughs> and what about when you're at home with your family? Very relaxed. Try and be as relaxed as possible. And I think the days of sort of formal entertaining have really dropped by the wayside because I don't think anybody can be bothered anymore and I don't mean in a sort of lazy way but because it's so much nicer I mean it's a it's, it's lovely occasion to dress up and sort of what have you but I think people want to be relaxed now I think you know you when you ring someone and say oh, what are we wearing tonight and they say oh you know, we're wearing black tie whatever it is you think oh god you know I mean it, it, it's going to be that sort of evening but if, if they just say oh just whatever come as you are it's kitchen supper then I think that's a much more popular thing now and you can still have great food you can still have great wine you can still have all sorts of things and you can just be more relaxed. And, you know, the conversation is likely to be less stilted and, you know, someone might get guitar out or get at the piano or something. I mean, I love a sing-song, so the ideal dinner for me is the one that sort of, sort of you know, disintegrates into a sing-song and any sort of childish behaviour, to be honest. But I think now we would always be... So we're, we're very relaxed and Louise will cook or produce something from M&S and then put it into something rather exotic bowl and put some parsley on top of it so it looks as if it's been handmade. Occasionally, it's quite easy how you can fool people actually. You can, you can get things 
take away things and then put them in sort of china bowls and put a spoon in and put a you know poppy on top is always quite a odd thing because people notice the poppy but not the fact that it sort of looks like it's come from a takeaway <laughs> so you sort of blindside them and then we'll depending on on who the people are is depending on, on what we give people to drink so we, we'll have wine but a lot of people drink uh, don't drink now obviously and quite a lot of people want beers and ciders and things rather strangely but they do you've been based in london a long time now you must have seen mm. the culinary scene change an awful mm. lot if, if you're going out and about now and you have free reign where where do you want to be eating well, I love the the boys' restaurants. I love the Woolsey. I love Colburn. All all Jeremy King's places because I just think they're so beautifully run, and I think you know the staff are great, and you can get the things that I like. You, know, you can get sort of voluminous food. You know things like veal, Wiener Schnitzel, or any of those sort of big old lumps of meat the size of a ping pong bat, with potatoes and, and fantastic puddings. I think puddings are hugely underrated. I'm always my heart falls when I see a, you know, a menu with four different puddings on it and they're all things like sorbets. I want something that involves caramel, ice cream, probably a lot of butter and things a like that. A man after my own heart. Yeah, I mean, I love a pudding. <laughs> In fact, given the, the thing of shall we have a starter or a pudding, I would never sort of have you know, something slightly sort of weedy and pointless to begin with because there really isn't anything you want to kick off with unless you're in the mood for soup. I've always thought hors d'oeuvres and, and, and sort of, you know, first courses were pretty unimportant. And there was a ghastly time, I remember at home, when my parents used to give dinner parties, when they had aspic, you know, they had cold consomme. I never understood what all that was about. You know, sort of wobbly bits of jelly, occasionally with an egg in it somewhere. Simply disgusting. And that seemed absolutely pointless. Apparently it was to sort of, you know, purify your palate. Rather like sorbets, I never saw the point of a sort of, you know... And an amuse-bouche. I never found my mouth was in any way amused by them. I, I really wanted to have something, you know, brown Windsor soup <laughs> or something. <laughs> Start with just... And Theo, what for you is comfort food? I mean, to be honest, real comfort food for me is something like fish fingers, macaroni cheese. Macaroni cheese with tomatoes and bacon would be an absolute... And a thing that my mother-in-law used to make and, and, and Louise's inherited, which is a thing called Super Sausage Supper, which is sort of a thing, it's, it's not a particularly good name because I think in a, a restaurant, perhaps you'd have to call something like, you know, Saucisson Bartonnaise or something, but anyway, whatever, it, it, it's essentially sausages in a sort of gravy with tomatoes and baked beans and kidney beans, if you can find them and other little bits of whatever. So generally a sort of, you know, russet colour and a sort of thick, the consistency is somewhere between stew and the filling of a pie, if you see what I mean. Incredibly wholesome. And then you put in Lee and Perrin's Worcester sauce to taste. Some people don't want too much of it. I like quite a lot. And it almost makes you cry. It's so wholesome and lovely and sort of, it's like a huge blanket. So I love that sort of food. I find, fun enough, onion soup very, very sympathetic. So it's, it's that sort of thing. I like, I, I suppose, what you'd call nursery food, I'm afraid. Scrambled eggs on crumpets with a tiny bit of marmite on the crumpet. A lot of butter, a tiny bit of marmite, and then very yellow, slightly runny 
scrambled eggs. I'm salivating at the thought of that <laughs> and also becoming quite emotional at the idea of <laughs> sitting in front of this sort of eight o'clock thing or whatever te- is on telly on Sunday nights, you know, that sort of... And then probably the best pudding ever invented, which is butterscotch angel delight. And if you've never had it, you should, because it is a masterpiece. And again, for some reason, with, with desiccated coconut, like the, the word desiccated, I think, is only used for coconuts. I don't think it's used... I've never heard it used otherwise, but it, it, just it's sort of, you know, grated coconut. I don't know why we always had that on butterscotch angel delight. Otherwise, creme brulee. I would follow somebody who made a good, even unto death, I think, if they made a good creme brulee. And what the French call flan, but we call creme caramel. I don't know why we call it by a French name and the French don't call it that at all. Seems odd. But it's rather like all those things that have a name like French toast. Never seen it in France. English muffins, never seen them in England. Um, <laughs> That's true. Belgian waffles. What are you talking about there? We have no waffles here. <laughs> It's a strange thing which the Americans, I think, just give a name to anything to make it seem more exotic. And French fries. French fries, exactly. They'd be appalled <laughs> if, you, if you offered. But on the other hand, who cares? <laughs> Hello. Yes, it's either very sweet things or very kind of, you know, things that are physically warming and have a texture that is, apart from fish fingers, a fish finger sandwich in white bread is almost unbeatable. But I think, again, that's, that's because it reminds one of nothing but good things. I don't think at any really bad time in life it's been because of or with fish fingers. No wars have been fought over fish fingers. Although now, I suppose it is being, as we speak. God, that's rather upset me now, the idea of a fish finger war. <laughs> I was just about to say, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to go and make a fish finger sandwich now. You've, I know. you've persuaded me. You can't beat a fish I know, finger it's, sandwich. It's one of the best. But what you want with it is a little bit of tomato ketchup and a little bit of Heinz salad cream mm-hmm. mixed up till it's a sort of pink colour. Spread that on, a lot of butter, thick bit of, of bread, and cut the crust off. So you get oh. straight to the fish finger without too much crust. Anyway, that, that's my tip for a happy evening. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. And unless you want to see the desert island. As a matter of interest, is the question, you could have that meal forever? Yeah, it's sort of a death row meal question without oh, wanting to be as bleak as death row, <laughs> I think, is the way we tend to do yeah. it. You wouldn't want anything that would suddenly come out. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If death row, when they hanged you. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I, I think you do void yourself, as they say. So you'd want something... I would have violet creams. <laughs> so the last memory they had of you was it was a faint hint. A waft. Little, a waft of violet. <laughs> oh, so yeah, glad you say that, Terrible. Dear. What a murderer, but... Oh, he smelt so nice when we hanged him. <laughs> Do you know, you are the first person ever to have had that response to the question. I'm quite impressed. <laughs> I love violet-flavoured things, but people yeah, think it's really weird. People, so do I. I love Parma oh. violets, and everyone always thinks oh, that's really yeah. odd. So do I. Like. Parma violets, one of my oh, favourite things. They're delicious, and aren't also they? also violet creams mm. with a little bit of, you know, that little purple thing on top. Mm. I love those. I think it's probably... I don't think a manly man should really admit that he likes violet creams <laughs> and things, but I'm afraid I do. You wheedled it out of me. <laughs> At the last possible moment. <laughs> Just before you hang me. Oh, no. <laughs> Theo, right. thank you very much for joining Not me. Not at all. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. <laughs> 
Pleasure to be on. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. And if you've really enjoyed it, please do leave us a star rating and review. It really helps us out. 